What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Check the backseat. Check the backseat. All right, come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the back seat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Welcome to another episode of Strictly Business, the podcast in which we speak with some of the brightest minds working in the media business today. I'm Andrew Wallenstein with Variety. This week, a special doubleheader edition of the pod. That's right, we're giving you two great back-to-back interviews that were recorded on September 15th at Variety's Entertainment and Technology Summit in Los Angeles, presented by City National Bank. First, a rare one-on-one with the chairman of Disney Media and Entertainment Distribution, Kareem Daniel. He's kept a relatively low profile in a high-visibility role at the company. But Variety co-editor-in-chief Cynthia Littleton got him to sit down and break his silence. And after that, I spend time with an industry veteran who doesn't know from silence, Blumhouse founder Jason Blum. He's not only one of Hollywood's most successful producers, but one of its most candid ones to boot. He and his company's new president, Abhijay Prakash, opened up about the current state of movies and profit participation. Strictly Business will be back in just a moment. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public, the list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand, when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward, don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. Here's Cynthia and Kareem Daniel. Personally, I, I've had a pretty fortunate uh, set of diverse experiences from a career standpoint, both, I'd say, within and without the company. I actually started off as a computer programmer. 
Um, I spent some time on Wall Street. It, the thing that was always in the back of my mind was a, a true passion for entertainment film was what I grew up on. That was my, my outlet. And ultimately, I made a decision to exit a career path um, and try to get into the entertainment industry. And I went back to business school and uh, had to fight to get an internship at, uh, at the Walt Disney Company. Uh, actually, it was for Bob Chapik's organization when he was running home entertainment and a fortuitous uh, meeting of course Bob Chapek now the CEO of Disney it was fortuitous indeed um, to actually be in a film studio which is something that I'd always dreamt of and I just didn't know my angle into it and and certainly uh, having that opportunity uh, it was a great summer experience of course they don't have this is entertainment company so there's no and then we'll hire you uh, so I had to kind of fight to get into Disney yet again once I graduated, and I went into corporate, and ultimately I got an opportunity to go back to the studio when Bob became not just head of home entertainment, but all of distribution. So his responsibilities extended from theatrical to home entertainment to television to digital, and his goal was to harmonize across all of those platforms to optimize the performance of the film, which sounds very familiar to what DMED does today, but right. at that time, that was pretty revolutionary. It was a it was a an early kind of a precursor to that idea of that that this content is going to go everywhere. It's not just going to go through that one channel. That's exactly right. I mean, this is it's 2010. I think the the first I know the first picture it feels we like did, a long time ago. Right. It was Alice in Wonderland was in March, and we wanted to shrink the window a bit from four months to three. Oh yes, I remember that was which was a very big deal <laughs> at the time. There's a lot of you're going to ruin the box office. Uh, you're going to destroy the paradigm. We didn't destroy the paradigm. The film did quite well. It destroyed box office records. It, it did a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's still a top ten release uh, in the month of March. So it it was a precursor to what we're doing now, mm-hmm. frankly. Yeah, that's an uh, interesting example, though. It was it was a fantastic example. So I've, yes, I've had a lot of experience at Walt Disney Company, film studio being one. But I've uh, I was in Imagineering uh, at the beginning of COVID, which I would say was one of the most special experiences I could have. Mm-hmm. Being in one of the most creative organizations in the Walt Disney Company or in the world, frankly, and really getting a sense of the passion and, and heart that goes into creating, frankly, things that have entertained people for 50 years and will entertain them for the next 50. And leading into DMED, I'd say that this experience gave me more insight and pre- preparation for this role than, than I would have thought in that I was in a creative group and another group had the business decisions. Right. And this is in Imagineering, and you were president Correct. of operations of Imagineering. That's right. So, like, a big gig there. And we're... Wrangling those exactly. Imagineers. Well, the Imagineers, by the way, I made so many great friends there and learned a lot about the creative process that I truly appreciate. But I also was able to understand what's it like to not have control over ultimate business decisions. Right. So you fast forward to this uh, new organization, new, we're two years old next month. Mm-hmm. So we've been at it a little while where DMED, our organization, has that ultimate business authority, and then there's incredibly talented content teams that are making things that are entertaining people all over the world. I feel like I have a bit of understanding of what that's like, having spent time in a creative organization without that ultimate authority, where I know that collaboration is absolutely critical. You can't operate a business without having a true appreciation and connection with that creative group. So a lot of experiences, but I try to draw on all of them. 
-hmm. in this new role. Let me ask you, in, in moving from you know, consumer products and distribution, working with the Imagineering Group, was that, were those sort of opportunities that came up, or was it a strategic, did you have your eye, I want to have experience here, I want to have experience there? I do a great job of trying to weave together these experiences uh, in a way that makes it seem planful. And <laughs> that's the art, right? <laughs> it's, it's certainly not the case. Uh, but that's, that's the point. As I said earlier, each of those experiences have yielded something that I draw upon. Mm -hmm. Being in this role for two years, it helps to understand consumer products and know that what the Walt Disney Company does is make content that can be uh, used and, and, frankly, shared in different types of experiences on many different types of platforms, whether it's consumer products, theme parks, et cetera. Something that the Walt Disney Company does, we'd argue, better than anyone else in the world. That helps that I was there. It helps that I was in Imaginary. Mm -hmm. It helps that I was in corporate strategy and, and looked at, at the entire company in totality to try to determine, to try to help determine, frankly, how we can operate better together. And I think that's, that's what we do. It's, it's even now, over the last couple of years, you've heard a lot of, obviously, a lot of focus being on streaming. We have a lot of focus on streaming. Mm -hmm. we're, we're very uh, pleased with our progress there. But, of course, we're not just a streaming company, just like we're not just a theme parks company. We're not just a consumer products company. Mm -hmm. We may be the best in the world at many of these areas, but it's the Walt Disney Company. And we pull them together in a way that I'd say it's greater than the sum of the parts. And having been in so many different places at the company, I can see how well we do that and collaborate. And I can also see the opportunities to do more, uh, which I think now that we have two business units with Parks and Experiences called DPEP, mm -hmm. And then, of course, media entertainment with DMED, we're able to do that in a much more fluid way. And Disney Plus, frankly, is going to be key for that going forward. Let me ask you. So, as you know, as again, most people know, big transition at Disney in February 2020. Bob Chapek took over from as CEO from Bob Iger. Of course, we know what happened the next month in 2020. A little, you know, quite a, quite a fraught time. At some point, I'm guessing in the late summer, fall, you got a call from Bob Chapek and said, "Karima, I have a job for you." Can you talk about how, how you, the discussions that led you to your, the chairman posted at DMED? Sure. Uh, first, I have to acknowledge your point, though, with regard to D23. It's just a moment to sit back and just be amazed at the creative talent at this company. The breadth uh, is amazing. The breadth is insane. And when you look at Avatar The Way of the Water, as you said, we have water, but we also have Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, uh, two of the most highly anticipated features this year, if not ever, uh, coming out. And you look at what we just dropped with Little Mermaid and essentially breaking the internet with, uh, it's just so touching and sweet, the reaction there. Tonight we've got Andor premiere. It's just so much happening right now that it gives you a moment of respite of, okay, we certainly have the most amazing content and that makes our jobs that much easier. So uh, I have to acknowledge that. I'm glad you brought it up. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the creation of this position, I think ultimately the way... Uh, we've thought about it is there's excellence in making, there's excellence in actual uh, more the business and, and, and running the P&L aspects of that. That can be separate, and we've done that to success elsewhere, as I mentioned, Imagineering. And when it comes down to it, DMED has two responsibilities. Fundamentally, it's looking at content investment and it's looking at distribution strategies. And it is in a situation where and, and I know it's, it's, been, it's confusing because there's so many different companies with different paradigms. Fundamentally for us, we are tasked with looking at each and every platform, whether it's networks, theatrical, or streaming, and determining what growth we anticipate or we will expect of ourselves to generate. 
So it isn't that content creators create something and then we just figure out, okay, it should go here or there. It's much more planful, it's intentional, it's strategic, the way we look at it. So looking at each of those platforms, whether it's networks, theatrical, or streaming, what should the investment levels be? And based upon our knowledge of the consumer and what's resonating, we look on those platforms to determine what types of content would best drive that growth. We share that with our content partners, and of course they create at a level that no one else in the world does, and they generate the incredible content that those talented groups deliver to those platforms in a way that drives that growth. We may determine strategically to make changes when we have to. We have a flexible strategy, of course. The pandemic was, was a test of that flexibility, uh, which we're, we're pleased with what we learned during that period of time. But going forward, we believe in the theatrical market. We know what we're going to do there with regard to continuing Number one in a global box office six years in a row. We don't anticipate that changing anytime soon. We know what the theatrical marketplace can do, creating a cultural zeitgeist through features that then inevitably get played out across the entirety of the Walt Disney Company. And we're, we're very set on how that's going to go in the future. And we're able to do things, though, that we weren't able to do two years ago. And I'll give you an example. When you think of something theatrically like Thor Love and Thunder, great film, comes out. Fantastic. It's, ultimately, it's going to go onto the service, meaning Disney+. Plus. Well, you also look at our networks group, which we manage as well, and you look at something like FX that has tremendous content on it, but it also has some third-party content. And they go out, and they will get a film from perhaps uh, another studio outside of the Walt Disney Company. Mm-hmm. We saw an opportunity to do this. We're Thor, Love, and Thunder. We have Thor, the first three films in the Thor franchise. Let's take those three films that are on Disney+, Plus, put them on FX, in a way that gives Thor that much more exposure, yields benefit to the theatrical release of Love and Thunder, where you just get more Thor out there. We're not going to cannibalize one single subscriber on Disney+. Plus. In fact, across the bottom of that screen, when you're watching FX, Thor 1, 2, or 3, it says the rest of Thor, of this, and the other two, and all of the Avengers more are, hammers. are playing 24-7 on Disney+. Plus. That's harmonizing across our platforms in a way, frankly, we couldn't do in a different organizational structure. So that really epitomizes the... Because everybody's incentives are aligned in the same way. And, and it's with one group actually being able to make those determinations, it helps. We have Handsmaid's Tale Season 5 coming out. We just took Handsmaid's Tale Season 1, Episode 1, and we put it on FX. And we saw ep- Seasons 1 through 4 on Hulu get a significant lift just by putting it on FX. So on it helps FX... FX. We put it on linear FX, and it popped the prior seasons, one through four, as people are seeing, oh, okay, episode one, season one, I want to see the rest of season one, two, three, four, in advance of five coming out. That's just the type of interplay that we have by actually managing all of these platforms, that it's, it's truly hitting our stride now when we're able to do strategic things like that with tactical implementations that we're, we're seeing resonate with consumers. And you can actually see like uh, an airing, a linear airing Literally. drives people to the digital. The numbers would be surprising. The, the pop key. that occurred on the Hands Me Tale library on Hulu by airing that episode on FX. That's, ama- that's amazing. Let me ask him, so for a tough call, for a tough decision, a show, you've had a show for two seasons, you know, you've invested some in the show, the, the, the tough call, it's sort of on the bubble, as they used to say, about a season three renewal. Who makes the decision, we can't, we just, we're not going to renew this? Or who makes the decision, you know what, 
I, there's something here. This is going to this is going to grow in season four. We are going to renew that. Who, who makes those calls? Well, fortunately, we don't have a lot of examples <laughs> to draw upon um, because the, the content teams are just creating some fantastic things. We, we weigh a lot of different uh, factors in terms of whether we should go forward or not, and a lot of that does require faith in our content teams where. You know your story arc. You know what is happening. Sometimes you'll have a season one where you know you have to get through certain things, establishing characters and a fundamental storyline, but you know where that's going in a second season, even if it's not performing that well in that first season or as well as we would like. You know what it's going to do in the second season, and it's going to yield benefit because that library will maintain, if we're talking on a streaming service, it'll be there. And that is something that we rely upon our, our content teams for, certainly, but Ultimately, we do have the responsibility to drive the growth of these platforms, and if something is not performing, then we're going to have to make that call, um, as, as tough as it may be, that it's not working on the service. It is, and we, we're maniacally focused, of course, on hitting the profitability that we've established as a key goal mm-hmm. in FY24, and we're confident we're going to hit that. I'm guessing Christine McCarthy has a countdown clock in her office. <laughs> Christine McCarthy is the CFO, the CFO. of Disney. Absolutely. Christine and I are extremely aligned on a number of things, including hitting that profitability. So if we have to make those hard decisions at times, then we will. Is it fair to say it's a collaborative decision? It's a, it's a, you, it's a you conversation, it's a Dana Walden conversation, it's a Craig Erwick who runs Hulu's originals. It's, it's a collaborative conversation? Literally everything we do at the Walt Disney Company is collaborative. I'll give you an example. My first week, uh, we were working on a deal don't have to get into the details about it. And the team was presenting it out. And I just asked, what does content team X think about it? And the answer was, not sure. We haven't asked. And I immediately called the head of that content team and, and asked. I understand where that responsibility now resides. But the idea that we would not ask for the opinion of a colleague that had previously had that responsibility is not how we operate DMED. Mm. fundamentally. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad it happened early, and I'm glad it set a tone for how we've operated for the last two years. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, let's talk a bit about, of course, streaming has been the, the, the only topic of conversation in, in media for, uh, for some years now, it kicked off, I think, by, the, by, the, by Disney going for it with Disney+. Plus. Let's talk a little bit, we, our, our time is flying by here, but let's talk about the linear side of the Disney TV universe, which is, you know, box office and TV, that is what, and parks, of course. But, I mean, television is such an engine of, and the channels, the the existing, the traditional cable channels, ESPN, the the Disney channels, its spinoffs, Freeform, you know, there there's a sense that the linear world is is the melting ice cube. That is, it's 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 still a big generator of earnings and profits, but it is a melting ice cube, and that's when you know why the big investment in streaming. How are you as because you, you are responsible now for doing the deal for ESPN with Comcast and and Charter and getting those traditional linear distribution for the traditional cable channels as well as, as plotting the future for Disney Plus and Hulu and everything. How, are you, how do you approach the management of the linear ESPN, the linear freeform? Of course, ESPN has been in the headlines a little bit. There's been some discussion about, it was, uh, there's been some discussion, should Disney sell it or spin it off? Bob Chapek uh, spoke back to that, the, those suggestions. Thank you very much. I'd like to keep ESPN but can you talk about, so I, I'm not asking you to comment on that, I know, but can you talk about how 
you are managing those assets? And do you, I mean, is it, is it fair to say they are melting ice cubes and it's a manage of managing the melt? Or do you see that there are, that we are overestimating the decline there? Well, I often think looking at industries is important. But if you look at historically what the Walt Disney Company has done, that we have exceeded and perhaps even led those industries despite the fundamentals that may occur uh, in the industries in which we participate. And what I mean by that is you mentioned ESPN. It's the number one cable network, again, five years in a row. ABC, number one, primetime entertainment, three years in a row. I can keep going. There's, there's a lot here. It's going to freeform FX and so forth. We continue to perform well in those areas. That said, streaming is a massive part of our future, and our job at DMED is to balance across networks and streaming and theatrical. That means we know what the growth we want to achieve in networks, we know what we want to achieve in box office, and we invest appropriately. And again, the content teams are creating amazing content against that. And it's not a one or the other type situation. I won't give out specific stats, but look at something like The Old Man that actually debuted on FX, the linear channel. The Jeff Bridges drama. Which is fantastic. Terrific vehicle which, for him. And, and I couldn't be more excited about what that is going to look like in the future for The Old Man or what that's going to look like. <laughs> and we were talking about the Emmys backstage. I, I think that's a fantastic show. Its viewership on the linear FX, of course, at midnight it goes on to Hulu, the streaming service, is non-cannibalistic. So we're actually reaching more audiences than, or more parts of the audience than we otherwise would have with just a streaming or a linear component. And that's the criticality of DMED, is that we're able to look across all of these platforms, not at the expense of another one, right? It is fundamentally, we're going to drive streaming growth. We have our, our goals. We are going to hit those goals. But we can also have tremendous success in networks and theatrical. And I know there's more focus on the other parts of the Walt Disney Company, perhaps outside of the company these days. We've always had to focus internally about the variety of platforms that we have in DMED or the variety of experiences and touch points that we have across the Walt Disney Company with consumers. That is no less of a priority uh, now than it ever has been. And we tie these organizations together in a way that Again, the, the whole is, is greater than the sum of the parts. And we look at things like even Disney Plus Day, which we had a week ago today. And it's a fantastic opportunity where if you're a Disney Plus subscriber, you get into the parks early, uh, whether it's Disney World, Disneyland, Disneyland Paris, what have you. You get exclusive merchandise from consumer products. There's a lot of things that you get as a benefit of being a Disney Plus subscriber across the Walt Disney Company. And it seems like just one day, the things that we're doing along these lines are fundamentally what we want to provide every day to those that are within the Disney family to the degree that they opt in and want to participate across all of these different venues. We can enhance each of those experiences. I mentioned the parks earlier. If you go to a park and you have a meet and greet with the princess, I'd argue that's probably the best park and the best meet and greet that you can have in the industry come home, and again, provided that that family wants to hop into such an experience, shouldn't Disney Plus be a little bit more tailored towards Princess for those consumers? That's something that we can do. And again, I, I've spent time working on some of these rides that I know are built on game engines, and they could be more responsive and dynamic with regard to what types of stories they're serving up to you. If 
if, if consumers want to be a part of this experience, when we think a lot of people are going to want that, based upon what you've experienced on Disney Plus or with consumer products, et cetera, can we now offer you a different experience, a more specialized, personalized experience once you're on, excuse me, once you're on that ride um, at, at one of our parks? Those are the things that, that we're working on. Mm-hmm. Again, much more cohesively that we frankly believe no other company on the planet can do. Mm-hmm. And I know um, that Chapek has talked that there's, there, are, there are things coming to ESPN Linear, ESPN Streaming, that are going to integrate it you know, even more into the, into the Disney ecosystem. But let me press you again in that linear world. Are you anticipating some tough conversations coming up as you, as you renew Linear ESPN with traditional distributors like Comcast, like Charter? Do you think, I mean, ESPN has always been at the t- you know, top of the market in terms of fees. Do you think those conversations are going to be tougher in the future? Well, we've had many of them over the last couple of years. Um, and yes, they were tough. <laughs> I guess that's and they kind were, of a given. But They were tough the last cycle and the cycle before that. We have an amazing distribution team that, that helps the MVPDs understand the true value of what not just ESPN, but our entire suite of networks provide. I, it's hard to imagine um, anyone not being able to appreciate really what ESPN does in terms of tying together that core cable bundle. Uh, and I think our partners understand that. And they have understood it in these last cycles. Uh, certainly, uh, again, we anticipate those conversations to continue as they always have. Um, but what we've learned from our partners is that they understand the same thing that we see with our consumers is the true value of, of ESPN to that bundle. And we continue to yield incredible value out of it, not just specifically as it cruise to ESPN, but the entirety of our cable networks as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, our time, is, our time is running short. I want to ask you about Hulu because there's a lot, a lot in the world about Hulu. I want to ask you specifically about Hulu Live, that service, which is basically a, a digital MVPD. Let me ask you a skeptical question. Is that a real business for you, or is that an add-on that, to keep, that Hulu offers to some consumers? But the bulk of your Hulu is, now stands at 46.2 total subscribers, and of those, 4 million take the Hulu Live channel package. It, it, it's been flat the last couple of quarters in terms of that growth in that area. Is that something that is something that you think can grow, or do you think that is something that is a, a value added, but that's not a growth area for Hulu? Well, we certainly believe in Hulu Live as a product, and we also believe, again, anything that we do is we believe in in its own right, but also the value that it yields to the rest of the company. And with our last price increase for Hulu Live, we enabled all of those subscribers to also get the Disney bundle. That is a significant benefit, of course, to our streaming services as well. Again, it's all about looking at every touch point, optimizing that, and we are doing that with Hulu Live, making that experience better and better. But we're also able to leverage that for the rest of the company, and that's, uh, frankly, something we just do quite well, and we have found ways to do that even with, with Hulu Live. So we believe in that business in its own right, as well as for the benefits that accrue to the rest of our company as well. Is that Disney bundle, is that a growth engine in and of itself? Are you finding more people that come to you come in for the bundle rather than one of the services? The bundle is, if I'm not mistaken, Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN Plus at this moment. Correct, and there's, there's a lot of talk about fundamentally, oh, there's so many different services. Well, that's what we were able to provide to consumers, one cohesive solution where you have the premium general entertainment with Hulu in the U.S., and I 
I would challenge anyone who's got better content on a platform than Hulu right now, whether it's the bear, the patient, prey, drop out, dope sick. You just keep going. And I know what the, the slate looks like as well, so I know we will keep going. You add that to the best branded platform out there from a streaming perspective with Disney Plus and the number one sports streaming service out there with ESPN Plus. We are providing a cohesive solution for families of all different types of demographics and sizes and interests. And that's what the Disney Bundle provides. And we, we have found the more that we get consumers to actually experience this bundle, the more likely that they're to stay and remain in our ecosystem, meaning our churn goes down significantly. We have great churn numbers that we're pleased with on Disney Plus or Hulu or ESPN Plus. But when you have all three and you can actually have the totality of what we have to offer from a streaming standpoint, consumers have found tremendous value in that and they stay around even longer. So yes, we want more people to adopt the Disney bundle and we're happy with that progress as well. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a sense though, like in recent months, is it, do you have more people come in the door just for Disney Plus or are you finding a lot of uptake on the bundle? I would say it's, it, each individual platform continues to grow apace. The bundle, it, there's two ways. Either you come in for the bundle, and we've been pleased with that uptake, but once you're in one of them, we have the ability to, of course, cross-sell and get you into the bundle as well. So having those a la cartes have helped be on-ramps into the bundle. So we, we approach it mirrored ways, and that's just in the U.S. When you look at our content offerings in a place like EMEA, because this is a obviously global set of initiatives, or general entertainment content, the same premium content, the bear, the patient, prey, and so forth, resides on Disney Plus in Europe, and that we've seen how that impacts engagement, engagement being a great barometer for churn. It is tremendous what that, that has done in EMEA, and that's our solution there. The Disney bundle is what we're doing in the U.S., and we're quite pleased with that as well. So we try to tailor again. Having a flexible strategy allows us to tailor according to the needs uh, in any particular region, and having the combination of our general entertainment and our branded, plus, frankly, in the U.S., our sports, we believe it's just the best, not just offering, but it's the best value that's out there in any uh, streaming landscape that, that we've contemplated. So that is what we focus on. But again, each individual service continues to perform as well. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we return, we've got a second interview with the top executives at Hollywood's Masters of Horror, Blumhouse. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela E is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. <laughs> That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yemi's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. And 
we're back with Jason Blum and Abhijay Prakash, the lead executives at Blumhouse. Take a listen. I was curious in terms of getting into the TV business where I think you're a little, uh, you know, obviously film is much more mature. What did you see as the opportunity there? Um, We got into the television business because we started to have a consumer-facing brand that was taking hold. And so I thought it would be um, silly not to exploit that brand in television also. Um, And the complicated thing about TV, and and, and 80% of our movie business is horror and 20% is kind of other, TV is almost reverse. It's about 75% other, 25% horror. Now, the other is... It's a, it's a broad definition. It's, it's dark themes. That are, we, we did a show called The Loudest Voice in the Room about Roger Ailes. Now, it wasn't a horror show, but he was a horrible guy. So, 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 uh, so, so that's how it's kind of, we, we tangentially relate it to Blumhouse. Um, the complicated thing uh, for us in our television business is that the DNA of our company is that we work on commission. We don't get fees. That's just so built into our process on the movie side. We don't get a producing fee. We get a piece of the profits. The more successful we are, the bigger that piece is. Um, And I, as a business person, producer, entrepreneur, am much more comfortable in that model. I'm much more comfortable going to someone and getting a big check if I'm not getting a piece of the check. If I'm saying to the person, I love this, pay for it, I'm not going to make any money until you do or until this show does. And um, I think the complicated thing is that the TV business just doesn't work that. You can beg all you want to work for nothing and get paid in success and they won't do that. You know, everyone gets paid up front and you negotiate for as much as you can up front before you make the thing that you're making. And, um, and I, I, I just, I spiritually find that complicated. Well, let's get into that because that's you know a big issue in the industry, perhaps the biggest. You've written a New York Times op-ed about this uh, in the streaming age. Just to explain to everyone, make sure we under- all understand, it works on a cost-plus model. All of the streamers, starting with Netflix, but it kind of went to all of them in time, started paying in a way where you would cover the cost of production and get a nice, healthy premium on top of that, maybe ten, twenty percent but you're basically signing away all your rights uh, in the process. You just mentioned you want to come at it a completely different way. How are you able to function in this world where basically all the buyers, the biggest buyers in town, want to do different business a lot differently than you do? Um, Well, like I say, I I function, but it's hard. If If you think about what you just said, cost plus, they're basically telling the producer to make the show as expensive as it possibly can be because you, the more you, the, the show costs, the more you're going to get paid. That is crazy. It's just <laughs> insane. And it, it's also, to Abhijay's point, like when, when, you're, when your whole other company is built on, I got the thing as low as I possibly could, so the profit is as big as possible, so your piece of that profit is as big as possible. You just have to take a whole nother thinking to like, you, 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 every producer, whether they admit this or not, they do the same thing. They do their show. They do their budget. Their budget is whatever it is. Then they say, how much do we actually think we can get from these guys? Add that much and submit it. And, 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 and the content business across movies and TV, for 100 years, 
as much data as you have, as good as you think you are at, at doing the job of picking, no one has ever picked even close to 50%. So 50%, usually 50 to 60% of what you make is not super profitable. And if you're paying everyone up front, you're acting as if almost everything you're doing is profitable. So I, I think, like my article said, I think, it's a, I think it's a challenge system, and I hope one day we'll change it. Well, <laughs> hope- it still exists in movies, yes. and I hope one day we'll, 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 TV will go back to uh, sharing and making, making shows that are less expensive. Hope is a nice thing. <laughs> Abijay, what, what steps can yeah. a company like yourself take to effectuate change and yeah. get the kind of models that you want? Are the, perhaps there's signs already that these changes are happening yeah. because clearly we're seeing voices like Jason's, yeah. others people out there who are you know, making the call as well. Yeah. Is there any hope? Yeah. Uh, well, look, I think, like Jason said, the, the model has worked extraordinarily well in the film business. And so we try to point that out as much as possible when we're bringing our series business to different buyers. But you, you said it, right? Jeff Zaganski, Bob Iger, there's other folks who've been talking about how our creators going to be compensated in a perpetuity cost plus streaming buyout model. You have to change that, right? Uh, I think there are some signs that's going to change. If you're looking for silver linings of the sort of Netflix uh, stock market correction and the shift to cash flow as a metric for, for valuing streaming businesses, there's a different degree of selectivity, judiciousness, and cost consciousness that's now seeping into the way buyers approach buying series. And so in that model, could you have things where projects like ours um, come in, maybe they're lower budget than the other ones, and so they're more willing to do those. We can either make it up in volume, or more interestingly, to align with what Jason Zapped said, maybe it's not a perpetuity buyout for cost plus. Maybe it's a licensing term and we get rights back later. Maybe there is contingent comp based on viewership, so it lowers what the buyer's paying up front, but then if you hit certain thresholds, right, um, about overall views relative to the cost of the thing, or you're in a top five ranking over the quarter or the year, you can get some contingent comps so that that is kind of a win-win, where then you're only getting extra money from the buyers in success, where they're getting real value from the show, and uh, it also lowers their upfront cost, which could work for us because we're not always, you know, we, 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 the, the budgets that we do, we know how to make things for less cost, right? And so that could really play to our advantage. But I haven't seen examples. Maybe you guys have. No one showed up with that deal yet and put it in front of us. So I think we're going to have to bring it with one of our properties to, to the market. I mean, we should explain the logic behind what the streamers are doing is, and perhaps different than the businesses of old that were buying projects is, they are trying to hit a global audience, and they want all those rights in perpetuity. And, you know, is it possible, Jason, there are some producers that are like, look, Blum's got a great track record, but others may be comfortable with getting de-risked and getting that premium in the beginning and, you know, washing their hands with it. I think there are a lot of producers like that. Yeah. And, and I think the idea, and, and that exists in the movie business to a certain degree, you can take a big fee and get a smaller back end, or you can go to the studio and say, I don't want a fee and I want to share more. And most studios are kind of open to haggling a little bit about that. So, and I, and, and I, there's, a, there's another, um, to, to flip what I said on its head, mm -hmm. there's another um, benefit to paying people out. It's like, a, I, I always say it's like a little kind of like a communist system, which is the following, which is that you can make shows and movies a little bit different than your point, for a very small audience, 
You can make art house shows and movies for a small audience and still get paid. So the, 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 the commercial shows and movies that streamers are doing are subsidizing art, which happens all the time. If you look at, if just if you look at the budgets of the last streaming movies in Venice, these are all art house movies. Um, uh, eight years ago, they would have been 15 to $25 million movies. Now they're $100 million movies. There's no way there's an audience to justify the $100 million, but it's being subsidized by the, by the shows that are hitting, by, by Stranger Things. So they're, in a sense, they're taking from Peter to pay Paul, which is, you know, there's something good about that. But, uh, but again, I think it would be better if there was more flexibility to it. Well, we should also point out that part of this uh, Faustian bargain with the streamers is you get this, uh, you don't get back end, you get this cost plus up front, and you don't get any data. Mm-hmm. So, Abhijay, how do you fly blind without that, and is there hope there for starting to get that going? It's, it's a good point. I, I cited the, like, the change, in the correction in the way streamers are valued as one thing. The other one is, is what you just alluded to, Andy, which is um, this inexorable march towards more openness and transparency around what consumers are doing when it comes to um, streaming content. And that is going to happen. And once that's out there, right, it's already, you can see Nielsen and other folks trying to, you know, they publish it. Netflix then obviously moved to start to do their top ten. So we're moving in that direction. Uh, Samba TV, there's a whole bunch of other data sources out there. So we're moving in that direction. Once that's really out there, you know, you've got agents in the room here, they're going to notice and go, hey, I see what my show did, my client show did. Producers will notice and go, I need to get paid for this. It did 10x what that guy's show did. And I need to be rewarded for that. So that's another way that hopefully we can achieve the goal, which is you're going to be able to have more transparency um, on what works, uh, mm-hmm. right? You at least have a version of that. It's one of the challenges, um, I think, in, in, in from film to TV is that there's less – because so much of the consumption is not driven by linear ratings, which we have access to, but happens inside of streaming universes that you don't have access to, you have box office still as a very relevant metric of how your movie did if it comes out theatrically, which can bolster an argument of going, I need a bonus if it hits $100 million or whatever. We don't have that on TV. Which- and the only thing I would add to that is because when you add an advertising tier, you have to share data. They're going to have to share data with Ford when Ford is advertising Although, on Netflix. Like Netflix is trying to get away without it right now from what I understand. But that's, I, I, don't, I think that's, uh, well, you know, they've done other things that no one <laughs> thought they could do. Maybe they'll do that. But I think it would be very complicated to, to sell advertising to uh, corporations without sharing data. So the hope is that as marketers get data, you guys will get as well. Well, it'll, it'll, the dam will break. It arms you, right? You yeah. have an argument, right. and you can yeah. point to something, right? Yeah. Well, while we're doing the military metaphor, I should point out that the big, bad streamers aren't as big and bad as they used to be. We've seen the Netflix correction. We've seen, really, a correction for the whole marketplace. Doesn't that increase the leverage when you come to these negotiations? I think the, the correction has made transactional... Um, the transactional distribution of entertainment, not a dirty word again, which is great. You know, I think it's very good. And so, and so, um, so the answer is yes. I think streaming is, is a big part of how uh, content will be distributed, but it's not the only way. And I think that's what we've seen over the last six months. And I think that's healthy overall for the entertainment ecosystem. We should point out you're not exactly a profit participation purist in the sense you not at have all. done these premium deals. <laughs> not at all. Great deal with NBC Universal. 
for a reboot of The Exorcist with three different movies, $400 million. So you're not above taking this upfront dollar. No, not at all. And I, and I, I um, you know what? I was thinking about this. I'm going to try it out, man. You'll see if you go for it. You, you, you can tell me if you think I'm, I'm uh, you're comfortable with full of SHIT. Yeah. Um, so here, here, here's how I look at that. Like, I think um, rich people, including me, should pay more taxes, right? But I'm not, and then some people, you know, some people say, well, just give the government more money. Well, a little extra money from me is not going to move the needle on the government, so I'm not going to voluntarily give the government more money because I think rich people should pay more taxes, but I would be very happy if all upper income people, including myself, paid more, right? But I can't, I'm not going to, so the idea that this system exists, it's, I'm not going to, I'm going to work within the system, but I wish the system was different. Now, do you think that's a fair Comparison? Do you think that's fair enough? I didn't know where you were going. Do you think that's <laughs> fair enough? Yeah, yeah. I, I understand does the that point. Yes, that you, does that work for you? Yes, that you live within the system no? and you have to do what's best you for... You think I'm still a hypocrite. You can tell me. <laughs> I think there's some hypocrisy there. <laughs> but I'm not calling you a hypocrite. Look, it's I'll business. It. You know, one, one last question on this front. Jeff Sagansky has... Chef Sagansky has said that you guys should be, like, petitioning the DOJ and Congress. Is, is that where this is going to end up? Boy, I don't know about that. Uh, I don't know enough about how. I, I wish, I, I don't know enough about it, but if there was some kind of class action on creatives and suppliers to share data and everything else, I'd be the first to join. But I don't know, I don't know the beginning of how to do yeah. that. But maybe well, Jeff can help us. Yeah, we'll sign his petition. We'll sign the petition. Yeah. Just as long as Jeff takes the lead. No, I'll take the lead even. I just don't know how to do yeah, that. Yeah. But I, I don't know enough about if that's even possible, but I love the idea. Well, there's big union deals coming up next year. Could that be the place where this comes to a head? I mean, it's the same thing. We're the producers, artists, craftsmen, we're all aligned on this side. Yeah. We can get compensated you know, more fairly, right, for the performance of what we do. And so, yes, that's another angle that could, could also help for sure. Yeah. All right, let's shift gears and talk a bit about the box office. I'm curious how you guys feel about movies playing in theaters and how long they need in theaters. Is there a one-size-fits-all solution for Blumhouse, or does everything kind of depend on the particular movie that you're talking about? That's you. I I mean, I think it is not one-size-fits-all. It does vary movie by movie. You can just look at what's happened with our films to see that, right? You've got things, you know, we did a movie with Focus called Vengeance that's on a very different scale than Halloween, and we had Firestarter, and we have Halloween Ends coming up that's day and date, and then we have uh, Black Phone, and those all had, you know, different models of how mm-hmm. um, they came, uh, how they got released, and so it's not one size fits all. We're trying to figure out what the right optimal one is. It's a guess. You don't get to, like, do a controlled A-B test and then figure it out, so you look at the movie, and you have an assessment with our partners, and then you try to arrive at the release plan that makes the most sense. And for the most part, we've done it pretty well. And I think demonstrated some things that people did not think was possible. Halloween's probably the best example where you made, had a movie come out that was day and date. Like, oh, it's going to crush the box office. Who would ever leave the house? And it worked great in the box office, right? Opened a 50 million box. And was a massive success on streaming, right? Which people, you kind of have this very easy, I don't mean to pick on folks in the press, opposition that people like to write about theatrical versus streaming. We think those things actually support each other. And ultimately, everything ends up on streaming. Just sometimes it starts on theatrical. And sometimes it starts on theatrical with a window, like you have up there. And sometimes it starts on theatrical day and day. 
so yeah, we absolutely think about it along with our partners about what the right thing is for each movie. Jason, how are you feeling about the box office these days? It's been quite a year where if we talked in the middle of the summer, you'd probably be, like a lot of people, very optimistic. Look at Top Gun going to a billion dollars. But as we've come into the fall, it's looking like box office for the year will probably be down at least 20% compared to 2019. So the future of exhibition, broadly speaking, are you feeling good? Uh, I don't know if I'm saying I'm feeling good. I'm feeling optimistic. I think it's never going to be what it was. I think what is clear is there's a certain kind of movie that is still working. Luckily, horror is one of those. You know, it's horror and big tentpole Marvel-type movies. So I think those are two, two kinds of movies that are still working theatrically. Um, and I'm happy about that. I think, there, you know, I think the adult drama, I think, I think there will be adult dramas released theatrically, but certainly it was challenged before. It's even more challenged now. Um, so I think the theatrical business, it's going to change shape. The, 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 um, you know, with our, my friends in exhibition aside for a second, the actual health of the motion picture business is excellent right now because the press doesn't um, report on this well. No offense. Um, um, the, the amount of ancillary value a movie makes is almost twice what it was five years ago. So if I have a movie that makes $100 million, the amount of money I'm going to make from all the ancillaries is, is, is almost equivalent to a movie that five years ago would have been $200 million. So even though the box office may be off 10 to 20%, the other side of it, which is the ancillary value of the movies that are released theatrically, is, is almost twice. So the overall health of the movie business, I actually feel, is very good. Theatrical is, is, uh, is more challenged than it was before, will be more challenged than it was before the pandemic. Speaking you, of, you, do you agree or yeah. disagree? No, I think that's, 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 that's bang right. on. I'd add a couple things, which is, you know, we happen to know a little bit about how it worked at studios when the models changed. Um, Jason's 100% right. Some of that stuff you couldn't know because it happens below the waterline. You don't know PVOD results are not publicly reported. SVOD streaming, streaming is, not, uh, is not publicly reported. But we, do, we see it, of course, because we know how our movies are exploited, uh, and film studios share data. Uh, so, exactly. uh, so you know that we're getting a lot of tremendous value. So each dollar of box office, like Jason said, is worth way more now, which is great for the movies that get a theatrical release. On top of that, we have not increased, or the studios haven't increased how much they spend on marketing, right? So not only are you getting that return, and you, you've added windows that are earlier, to your slide's point, that don't require extra marketing. So the marketing's basically stayed flat. It's spread out a little bit differently. And so you've got no real increase in the cost side. You've got much more revenue coming in uh, uh, on, on the revenue side, even if it's not all in box office happening below, which can absorb any reduction in, in theatrical pain. And then the last thing I'd say is there's still an active alternative way of monetizing these movies now via streaming, right? Think about where we were three, four years ago. Like big Big, giant movies have debuted on streaming between Netflix and Amazon and what Sony and Paramount did with their slates and Peacock and Disney+. Plus. And so now you have an alternative outlet that is much more robust for big, thea- for big theatrical quality motion pictures that get sold to streaming. So if you put all that together in the movie studio, you go like, all right, the theatrical business has, theatrical first release business has greater health to it because of the way economics have changed. And I still have vibrant alternatives by uh, debuting things on streaming. Vengeance. 
what did it make? 2.6? 3.1? Oh, no, box office, I think we're doing about, I think about four. Oh, four. Okay, four. I thought it did three. Actually, four probably doesn't count, but I thought it did like three, three and a half. Something like Five that. years ago, if it did three to three and a half, the movie would not have broken. We would have lost money on the movie. Now we're going to actually make a little money on Vengeance, which is amazing. Um, um, just to my point, but go on. What were you going to say? Well, but aren't there going to be fewer movies uh, going to theaters? And if there are, does that work against your business? Uh, what do you think I about that? I, I, don't I think, think that so. there could be fewer overall, but like Jason said, we're lucky that our focus is in the horror space, which is clearly one of the most resilient genres when it comes to theatrical, right? People love that experience of seeing scary movies in theaters. So there could be fewer theatrical releases. I think that's entirely possible. There could be a reaction, like Jason said. Adult dramas, what they used to look like in 2008, 2009, 2015, could look more. That trend was already happening. It's been accelerated due to COVID. So there could be fewer of those that come out in the world. Or they're made at a lower cost base and they have more targeted marketing to them. So I don't know on the overall volume. There will probably be some reduction in theatrical movie going versus 2019. Let's see, though. We're still early in the recovery period, and maybe by 2023 and 2024 that could change. But that's a fair assumption. I don't think we're the only ones who are, who are saying that. All the analysts have a version of that. Uh, but even if there are fewer movies, the stuff that we make has still seems like it's doing extraordinarily well. Look at Black Phone and some of the other horror movies that other studios did. So I think from our point of view uh, that there's incredible health and robustness in theatrical. And like we said, you still have all that downstream benefit where streaming actually helps us make more money um, when you couple it with box Yeah, the movie business is going to be much more profitable than it's ever been before, but the box office may not be as high as it was before. And I would imagine there's probably going to be some serious shrinkage of the footprint of theaters worldwide some i mean there's definitely going to be some shrinkage there's too i mean there's too many screens you probably know per market yeah, i mean but people definitely have that view like yeah. in certain markets that there's over screening you see examples of it here right some screens shuttered in the u.s over the course of the pandemic that probably don't come back and now you have a cinema world you know bankruptcy process happening and probably some of those locations don't come back but Fewer screens. There's a lot of capacity. I think theatrical um, um, you know, exhibition has like 15, 20% co- like usage, utilization. So there's still room to gross as much as you, know, you need to on any given movie, and even if there's slightly fewer screens. So you're bullish on theatrical. Does that mean you guys wouldn't do... Bullish sp- on the movie business. Yeah. Right. Got it. Yes. So meaning there'll be some Blumhouse movies that go straight to streaming, some that will play in theaters, Right. Some with accelerated windows that do both, sure. Okay. That's or a- the movie that did 30 and would have done 50 will do better, even though it's only doing 30. Even though what Skelts gets written about is, this movie only did 30, it would have done 60. But actually, this movie that just did 30 will ultimately make us more money than the one that did 65 years ago. Well, okay, so in the TV business, are you feeling, I mean, five years from now, do you think Blumhouse will be known as much for TV as it is now for film? We have success in TV. We did the, just did the show thing about Pam. It was a hit for Peacock. But I would like ongoing series success equivalent to our movie business success. And we don't have that. And I hope that in uh, five years we'll have a few of those. Okay. I mean, if you think about our, the, the, Jason alluded to it earlier, the brand and what it's become from where it started and how meaningful it is. I don't think any one of us know exactly what the consumer landscape is going to look like in five years. What are people going to be spending their time on as uh, entertainment consumers? TV series and film 
Gosh, for sure, we hope so. It feels like that trend, like we just talked about, would be there. But are there other places that people spend their time? You had you know, a d- robust discussion around audio right before us, and then we joked around about it a little bit. We're in that business too, right? We have a partnership there. Um, if that's where consumers are spending more time, we can lean into that. And, and there's relevance for what we do, storytelling in the genre space that could extend into other formats, right? We are a big part of Universal's Halloween Horror Nights experience, right? So it's a live location-based experience. Maybe there's a lot more that's there. And I don't know if uh, you guys have talked all about the metaverse. If the metaverse starts writing oh checks for uh, for storytellers and and then anybody who's a fan of Blumhouse, and we can we happily will create content in that space too. So I think we're open to taking what's been created with this brand, this connection we have with consumers, and the passion for storytelling in that space that we've got, and extending into other areas. Certainly, TV is the is the realm that we're in right now that we want to grow. So last question, five years out again, what? Any ideas of what marketplace you guys will be playing in? I assume I'll go first. Fewer streamers, there'll be consolidation. Right. What else do you think will happen over that time? Boy, yeah. I mean, you already there's like a headline every day about oh, they're thinking about consolidating operations between this streaming outlet and that streaming outlet. So you didn't really go out on a limb there, Andy. Sorry. <laughs> uh, um, Come up with something risky. But, yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I, that, to me, the biggest question are all these new spaces in the gaming, metaverse, short-form content area. There seems like there's a lot of money and noise. I, for myself, have not figured out practically what that could look like yet, but really interested in knowing if anybody, if anybody does have it. Uh, and then I do think there'll still be really healthy businesses for, for movies and for, for series. But that's you know, my, my guess. I don't know if Jason, you have one. They'll be sharing and streaming. That's, an that's my prediction. My How soon? Yeah, it's five years. Yeah, I'm giving I you gave you five. Line. Okay. Give you five lines. In five getting... years, well, everyone will realize that's a better model. You get better shows and movies at a more reasonable price, and that will happen. And you'll get data too. And we'll get. If, yeah. They can't share without sharing yeah. data, so yeah. we'll get data too. Yeah. All right, you guys are going. That's have my to, prediction. You guys are going to have to come back in 2028. We're and here. Do this again. Book us. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks Thank for you. coming in, guys. This has been another episode of Strictly Business. Tune in next week for another helping of scintillating conversation with media movers and shakers. And please make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear future episodes. Also, leave a review in Apple Podcasts and let us know how we're doing. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council.